Hello and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFB's monthly podcast. I'm Rihanna Scoggins, the community manager for the ACFB, and today we're joined by Jenny Radcliffe, aka the People Hacker, an ethical social engineer and burglar for hire. She helps companies test their security through simulated criminal attacks using her social engineering skills. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Your experience is really interesting, to say the least. You know, and now you're at this point where you've spoken at many events and for different companies, and some of our own members may even recognize your voice from our Anti-Fraud Leadership Summit um, that we had last year. Can you tell us a bit about your unconventional experience that led you to where you are now, giving talks, authoring books, and helping companies? Sure. I mean, it's it's within the security industry, social engineering is not such an unusual job. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of the time people who do the same job to me use technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, social engineering is all about hacking a company at their request, um, at least when you do it ethically like I do at their mm-hmm. request. Um, it's sort of a cross between a fire drill and sort of Ocean's Eleven, but we're not that good looking, right? Um, we put together a team, I put together a team, sometimes I work on my own, um, in order to test the human side of a business's security. So that would be everything from whether people follow the rules or whether we let people tailgate through gates and reception, whether we give our details away or information away through phishing emails or phone calls. Um, And also what I do that's not as well known is we actually break into buildings. So we actually do our best to bypass security, to get into a, a, you know, a site and work our way around that site to find out. Sometimes we have a target from the client, but sometimes it's just generally, are there any things that I might see that I think could be a security risk? And then it's an education piece. We report back to the client and we help them fix those issues so that the real criminals can't do it for real and I guess you know this is a job that I've done um in the open for maybe 15 years but all my life really um and that's because nobody really spoke about this until cyber became a thing and the internet became a thing and you realize that there was more people than just me who did this but I started um just as a kid where I grew up in the UK um and it was not such a great neighbourhood. A couple of things happened when I was younger um, that were a bit dangerous. So my parents basically asked my family, my older cousins, who were, um, you know, much older than me, much more streetwise than me, to sort of teach me a few things and to look after me. And I ended up following them, getting into empty buildings, uh, derelict <laughs> buildings, just out of curiosity. And gradually we got into... Um, occupied buildings but that was at the request of the owners just as sort of a a little job and then I gradually grew the business into what it is today. It's so interesting how you uh, paved your way into this career. Can you can you tell us about your first ethical social engineering job? Did the company come to you? How were you recruited for that? Were you like hey I know I can get info from your employees that you wouldn't like do you want to pay me for it (laughs) so 
So, I mean, it depends what we say, you know, mm. it depends what you say. Those first jobs that we did after we sort of did it as a hobby, um, somebody had said we had soccer players live near where I am from and they had big houses and they a lot of robberies were happening in the neighbourhood at the time. And they asked us, well, you know, if you can get into buildings, is there a way that you can get into our house and show us what's vulnerable and help us mm. fix it? Um, and they paid us for that, you know, me and my cousins. But that was, I was very young at the time. I was involved because being a woman, mm-hmm. I was less threatening to the families and the wives and things. And so, you know, than the boys were. So like really, they, those are the first real paid jobs. And then I was paid to uh, to look at a government building in Liverpool, where I'm from, by someone who sort of was a friend of a friend. He knew people in my family. Um, and I, I honestly don't really know where he got my name from, but I guess we've <laughs> done a few of these jobs in and around Liverpool. And, and you know, it was unusual. And the boys were kind of just about on the right side of the law, but they were, you know, security guys um, mm-hmm. in bars and things. So, you know, slightly less kind of, uh, I suppose, visible than I was at that age. <laughs> um, and, and also I did all the reports. So there was me and, and I actually got a call at home that asked me to go into this government building and steal a diary from a desk Um just because, to, to you know, as a security test, like, can it be done? Is the security right. adequate? Would the guards stop you? But I didn't ask enough questions. And, you know, even though I now know that the reasons behind that and that it was justified mm-hmm. and legitimate in a way, it wasn't as legitimate as we do it now. In other words, I'm not sure that the, the guy who actually owned the diary knew, but everyone else around him knew, so the, the company and, and, and everything knew and the and security guards, because he turned out not to be a very good person. Gotcha. So that was the first time I ever worked on my own. Um, and when I got the call, I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll ring the boys and I'll see if they're free. And and the the client said, well, do you have to do that? Can you Do you need them? <laughs> and it just occurred to me that I probably didn't, you know. <laughs> I called them anyway. And they said, no, no, go for it, you know, make some money. And then after that, it just kind of built and built. I think because it's an unusual job, the way I approached it was very unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, Rihanna, yeah, I had no tech skills. Um, I had no money. Um, <laughs> so it was all about outthinking the building, the security right. team and the target. And, and that's that's what makes my job and the way I do it more unusual, I guess. Definitely. Like like you said um, earlier and just then, you don't use any special technology um, or tools for your work. You're really just armed with your words, um, which is a little bit scarier, I have to say. <laughs> um, you know, you don't need all these tools uh, to do your job and do it well. I mean, so, they help. You right? know, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I've got uh, colleagues and people in my network who are brilliant hackers and who mm-hmm can bypass security in lots of different ways and, and that's wonderful you know and I wish I had those skills I don't <laughs> it's not too late to learn but you know I, I kind of don't have the time but I think it was more a case of what makes it so compelling to security teams is that kind of we can throw millions at security you know fences and alarms and doors and anti-malware and you know and, and the tech's very good it does a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to keeping our businesses and ourselves safe. But I think what's compelling is that 
because a human's in control of that technology, mm-hmm. a human can be bypassed. And so for us, our, our sort of our USP, really, our niche, my niche, was that, look, without in the absence of that, can we do it in a more human way, a more elegant way, a more simple way? Because those are the ones that get passed. You know, the tech mm-hmm. can be hacked. Everyone kind of knows that that can happen. But it's very, very good. So what, you know, is there a simple thing that could be done that makes sort of exposes us in the same way? And yeah, and so, so you, you know, I use skills like uh, negotiation techniques, uh, influence, persuasion, uh, reason, nonverbal communications, deception work. I mean, there's lots of things that we use to, to just make people do what we want them to do, which is very often open a door or share information. Right, right. You, um, you mentioned these different tactics that you use. In your opinion, what are some of the most effective techniques or tactics for social engineering? And you know, maybe you know, how can people or companies protect themselves from being manipulated by social engineers? Um, in just the the simplest way. I know there's so there's so much more um, than can be said in a in a podcast. Yeah, I mean, you know, it depends what you mean. So mm-hmm. so what people need to if we take the first part of that question, which is what techniques and tactics, the, the, the technique that is the most effective still is phishing emails, right? And even though we put lots of um, protection in and we have lots of tests and, you know, the jury is out in the security community of whether those phishing tests are really effective because, you know, we can write things to make sure that people fall or don't fall for them, right? But the email is the way to get people to interact with a hacker. And so what's happening with social engineering is that it's a blended attack. It's the human alongside technology. So you need a human to write a convincing script and then the technology to access the system if they click on the link or open the attachment, right? But what social engineering will also try and do is try and get people off technology as soon as we can, you know, get them off the site, off the, off the, um, off the network because criminals know that that's what protected and detection is likely but a phone call or a social media interaction leaves less of a footprint is harder to trace so the techniques are everything from those text messages to vishing calls you know scam phone calls um all the way up to in-person kind of chance meetings and quotation marks um and social media interactions and for example something like romance fraud might start with social media but the target might be where you work you know it might be that they look you up on say LinkedIn find out where you work and then sort of research you a little bit and then try and get to know you as access to the company so people often think that they're not rich enough or important enough to be hacked but everyone's worth hacking and the tact and the techniques um will always be, you know, whatever way humans communicate can be manipulated by a criminal. Now, how do they do it? Though? Well, from a tactics point of view, and I spoke about this when I spoke for the conference in New York, there are red flags and there's lots of different ones. But like, really, I essentially boil it down to four things. They're going to make people feel uh, emotional in some way. So, you know, is it the sob story on a romance fraud that, you know, they've had an accident, they need medical bills, they've been caught up in some, you know, natural disaster and they need the airfare? You know, there'll be some emotional element to these stories. 
often, as in those two examples, mixed with urgency. And then money is going to come into the equation. And so is a call to action. So the four things are, you know, emotional content, some sort of time, urgency, um, and then money usually as well as a call to action. Now, it's difficult with money because obviously we all deal with money and we all deal for that matter with emails, with links and, and attachments all the time. <laughs> so it's difficult. Um, but that's really how they're going to try and get you with social engineering. And in terms of the buildings and stuff, it's similar things, you know. There's, and it, it depends on the client what story, what script will work but they will fit it to something around those things. So that's really what's happening. And social engineering attacks, attacks that involve human error or manipulation, are a very high percentage of cyber attacks because they enable cyber attacks. They enable hackers. You know, once they need a way in, and that's usually human that, that gives them that. Um, but I think the numbers are, you know, some, some uh, think tanks give it as much as 95% more. Mm. You know, it's... A huge amount and um, because someone someone somewhere has to kind of give access ultimately so that's that side of it now you asked me Rihanna about um what we can do to prevent it as companies <laughs> and there is a lot of things I mean you have to have technology these days to try and block some of the malware and things that come through on email <laughs> and we have to pay for good security in terms of our networks and our teams. And it's expensive, you know, and people do still see it as a cost center, but it is so much better to do it than be hacked, right? right. So, or conned <laughs> or, or defrauded. So, you know, it's no longer just a cost center that we will kind of negotiate whether or not we need. You have to have security in your business, regardless of the size. Um, and then we have like human things that are free or almost free. I mean, for example, security awareness training for your team, you can spend millions and millions depending on the size of the organization. But the truth is, as long as the team are talking about security, there's a lot of free resources out there that you can find with basic awareness advice. You know, lots of videos, podcasts like this with people like myself can all help your team be aware. And what needs to happen is that team needs to know what social engineering is, and there's stuff that goes along with it from a cyber point of view. But the thing is, the stuff I specialize in is much more compelling than cyber a lot of the time, right? <laughs> so a lot of people want to hear about someone breaking into a building as opposed to another <laughs> virus, right? It's just true. Mm -hmm. um, but it's available. People need to know it. They need to talk about it in their weekly me meetings, in their line management meetings every week. So did anybody get fished this week? Did anyone see an email that looked dodgy? Why do you think it looked dodgy? Um, has anyone seen a movie with fraud in? <clears throat> has anyone seen, you know, an article in the news about about uh, hacking? Or and it just has to become part of the conversation, kind of in the same way the health and safety did, right? Mm -hmm. That you just have to have your team talking about this amongst themselves. It cannot be that you have a security person or throw money at some security tools and it fixes it. It just doesn't. It has to mm -hmm. become part of culture. So there's all of that stuff. And then it has to be that people feel comfortable reporting when they've made a mistake or when they mm. think they've been conned. And that's a cultural thing within organisations. If we blame people for falling for this, no one will ever say when they think they've fallen for it. 
So all of that is kind of part of it. But then there's basic what we call cyber hygiene. So there's basic things that can stop you being conned and defrauded as a company. And partly is keep your tech up to date. You know, if you look at something like WannaCry, which was a big attack a couple of years ago, a big cyber attack, you know, that took out a lot of the UK healthcare system for a couple of days. But there was a patch available. People just hadn't updated their apps, hadn't mm. updated their software. You know, people still reuse passwords. They still share passwords amongst teams and things for certain things. All of that stuff that we all kind of know, or at least have been told, it only works if we do it. Um, and then it's just making yourself a harder target. Don't put everything about you out online. And that goes for the business as well as personal. Control your audience. Control what's in the post and the picture. Put that attacker head on and see things from an attacker mindset. You know, if I meant this company ill, how could I use this information? And then we have to carry on with our lives and our businesses, you know, but it's it's a it's a big answer. It's a long answer to a short <laughs> question, but it's important because I will talk about this endlessly if it helps people protect themselves. No, definitely. Thank you um, so much for all of that info. I, I knew it would be a lot, um, but I think, it, like you said, it's incredibly important. And uh, my favorite kind of nugget of knowledge from that is that it's it's not any one person's job, um, you know, to protect a company. It's it's every employee's. We all have to be um, careful and safe. And and like you said, we have to you know sort of get rid of this stigma around being a victim of um, you know a phishing attack or um, you know any sort of fraud. Um, that way, we can talk about it and learn from it. Um, so, thank you for that. My pleasure. So with the uh, career that you have, is there a you know, conventional route into getting into it? Is there any sort of training or education or experience you may recommend to a CFE or someone who's looking into having a career as an ethical social engineer? You know, there really isn't. And there isn't even <laughs> really. I mean, there's a huge gap in the market for me to do training on this, right? But um there really isn't anything that I would out and out recommend in terms of purely what I do. Mm. Now, if we look at the cyberspace, there's lots and lots of courses that are technical in nature, and some of them have a social engineering element. But for example, I had a friend of mine went on a very popular course that was built as social engineering. It cost thousands of pounds. It was done uh, virtually uh, on a global basis. And she came to me at the end. She said, it's not social engineering. She mm. said, there's like an element of influence, you know, um, from Robert Cialdini's work. Um, there's some element of body language from Paul Ekman's work. But really, it's not really what you do. And this is the problem. It's not really pure social engineering. And that's mm. for a couple of reasons. It's because technical skills are so useful and, mm. and you know, and, and harder to kind of um, be certified. Well, Easy to be certified in, but sort of harder to, uh, social engineering is hard to isolate, right? So people <laughs> people want some technical skills as well. Um, social engineering in and of itself is something that's quite hard to learn because what it really relies on is an interest in people, right? And in human behavior. So it sort of takes in lots of different routes. It takes in psychology, even anthropology, 
you know, some linguistics elements there um, to analyze scripts and to help persuade and influence people. So there isn't really like a conventional route into it. What I say to people is, if you really are interested in social engineering, then I've listed already a lot of areas that you should look into, right? <laughs> but you should also start to follow some of the security community because something like B-Sides, uh, so there's, a, there's something called the Security B-Sides, and you can look it up on YouTube or online. And these are community conferences, not for profit, and they're held all over the world. The first one was in Las Vegas. There's lots and lots in America. I think Vegas is the biggest, then London is the, is the second biggest. But that involves people from the community, non-paid speakers, going and speaking at these things and talking about their career, their research. And within that, there's lots and lots. It's a mine of information for anyone who's interested in these things. And I think what it does is it, it sort of shows people, oh, look, there's lots of routes and lots of jobs in security. I don't have to be purely technical, but these are the technical skills that help. And I think what happens is people with some technical skills and an interest in social engineering tend to get jobs then with firms that do pen testing, which is what we're talking about, penetration test. Um, and so there's no conventional route into it. But if you're good with people um, and you've got an interest in security, you'll find a way. And if you're good with people with an interest in security and a couple of technical skills, then you're likely to get a job at a technical level to start with and then be deployed on jobs that involve social engineering again a long answer but <laughs> there isn't a simple one I'm afraid for a lot of this <laughs> um so you you said that you um will sometimes work with a team sometimes work by yourself um so you know this this team of people that you that you work with and that you have is that sort of their background as well is that kind of their route or, um, you know, is it um, a hodgepodge of different experience? I love that word. It's a hodgepodge. <laughs> um, so what I don't fit the, I, I don't have a permanent crew. So I recruit the crew <laughs> depending on the job and the client. Right. So um, I would use a different crew if we were looking at a hotel um, than I would maybe a private residence or, a, you know, a hospital. Um and they have different skills and different backgrounds. And it's a contract basis for me. Now, other t other teams, other, other security firms do have permanent employees. But for me, that means that we say, oh, someone's asked for social engineering, so we'll put our social engineers on the job, as opposed to someone's asked us to, to, for social engineering. Who do we need? So do we need former military people who are big and tough and angry and can pull doors <laughs> off their hinges? Do we need hackers with a particular expertise in a certain type of cyber attack do we need um, people who can climb high buildings do we need role players who will fit in with the culture and the aesthetic of the company you know and we fit that's how I work I fit the team to the job mm -hmm. and I recruit from my network I have some people I always work with but I recruit from the network so that's really the way that I do it and, and all of those people who've worked with me in the past um, are very welcome to come out and say they've worked with me, but I'm kind of fairly sure they won't. I, and that's just because I always recruited people who were more interested in the job than the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And I think certainly in the last year or two, it was starting to become clear that because I was so 
um, focused on bringing this message to the wider public and to speak in and do whatever work I could to spread the word, that I would be the one that would probably do that. Now, if they come out and do it, that's fine. <laughs> but it's just that I have a feeling that probably most of them won't. Um, but now there's no, you know, and some of them are just still in a normal, regular job. They just help me out now and again. So just think of that, everyone who's listening. You could be doing whatever job you do all the time and then take a few days off one week and come and work with me. You know, that's <laughs> what we're saying. <laughs> this is all just a recruitment message. Um, just a recruitment <laughs> drive. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I kind of want to go back a little bit. You mentioned one job that you did um, where you were, you know, getting that that diary. Um, so your, um, you know, a big part of your role is the fact that you're doing um, all of this for the right reasons, right? Um, and you're doing it ethically. So what are some of the ethical considerations that come into play when you're engaging in the work the way that you do? How do you ensure that you're not crossing any sort of legal or moral boundaries when you're running these simulated attacks? Well, you know, these days we have a, a contract <laughs> that says this is what you're allowed to do. And this is the boundary. And the same goes to the client. You know, this this is what we're going to do. And they agree it. And, you know, and that's all fine and dandy in terms of legal. Mm -hmm. Ethically, um, I make very sure, apart from the obvious things, like we don't steal anything or break anything um, without permission. Um, by which I mean if we steal anything we bag it up and give it back if we break anything it's within the contract that we're allowed so sometimes we'll say by a uh, destructive slash non-destructive means right so the client can say well we, it's, it's, sometimes they'll say it's okay to use destruction safely to the tune of say three thousand dollars or something what that means is we could break a window or a door or a lock or an alarm, maybe a small one on one door. Um, but very often, I will say we'll do it non-destructively, right? So, so we're not going to actually blow uh, blow the doors off. Um, some of you know what that's from. Um, and I avoided chaos in there. Um, but ethically is slightly different because obviously we are bamboozling uh, people, even though it's with good heart and with the best of intentions. So from an ethical point of view, we have meetings with the client. We do talk to them up front and say, nobody can be fired as a result of falling for what we're about to do because we are professional con artists and therefore they will be conned, right? Sooner or later, one someone will fall for it. Um, but I also go and meet with the people that we've directly face-to-face -face conned or, or over email. And I do speak to them one-to-one -one and talk to them about why they shouldn't feel bad about this and sort of spin it um, in as much as and the spin on this is you've learned a big lesson. You're not stupid for falling for this. You were just targeted and that can happen to anyone. It could happen to me. Hmm. Um, and now you're an ambassador for this, right? So now you know how it works. Now you can see that anyone can be fooled. And what we ask you to do is don't beat yourself up, but talk to people and tell them how this was done. And I think ethically, that that's the main thing is that cause, do you know, first, do no harm. Do not hurt people on our quest for security, if you like. Um, and so we only take that as far as it needs to go. And we do do everything we can um, to try and make sure that those people don't feel bad. 
Um, but then on the job, we don't reveal who the clients are. So, you know, I've written my book. The book is 300 pages. <laughs> you can't tell who the clients are. You might have a good guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly some of the UK references, you have had journalists already say, well, was it this person? And I just will never confirm or deny who they are. Um, the clients are protected through uh, redaction, basically. We've redacted and uh, changed some details, which I made very clear. Um, so we never name them. Um, although the book gives a lot of uh, tactics that we've used and lots of examples. Um, and unfortunately, the book's not in America yet. Uh, it, it, will, it won't be. We're still negotiating the US contracts, actually. But um, it will be hopefully this year. Um but you know, although I've given some away, we've not they're not that's nothing that you couldn't find out if you were determined to do so online. So I kind of feel okay about that as well. <laughs> although I always worry. Um and then the other thing is is that we don't steal or do anything that we don't need to do to get the job done, right? So there's no showboating. I always say there's no parrots, we don't talk, there's no peacocks, we don't show off. Um and there's no magpies. In other words, we're not we're not distracted by the shiny things. <laughs> we don't take the shiny things. Um, and they, that's really the ethical consideration. Legally, it's not such a big deal. That's sourced out with the lawyers. But <laughs> ethically, we have to cover ourselves for sure. Definitely. You you guys get to have these conversations about what you can and can't do. And the the reality is, is that, you know, criminals don't care. They're, you know, they're not like, hey, can can we do this or that? When you are in these situations, do you say, hey, we, you know, we could have done this if we wanted to. That wasn't really the goal of this attack, but we could have, you know, gone this route and even gotten more. How do you sort of disseminate that information to the clients of, um, you know, maybe just how vulnerable they are? Well, there's a couple of ways. Sometimes we just explain, you know, <laughs> so obviously if I had malintent, this would have gone this way. But there are fun ways that we can demonstrate it. So, for example, <clears throat> there was a point when I was outside the door of a, a secure room, which controlled, let's just say, something incredibly dangerous. Right. <laughs> I, I can't really say what it was, but something so dangerous that, like, it's really bad that I even managed to get to that door. And the next task was to get through the door Mm -hmm. Um, and a guy uh, stopped in front of me and I gave him the script and you know used a few sort of bits of persuasion and he had his uh, lunch with him so his hands were sort of full and he was fiddling with his pass and as he went to to do it he had the pass in his hands and his lunch in the other hand a colleague came and she said, wait, 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 you don't know who she is. You know, we haven't seen proper ID. It could be anyone. And, and to, to her credit, that stopped us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what I did was I stuck a sticker. So I got a sticker that I had in my hand. And the sticker just said, uh, yes, written on it. So just a big sticker mm-hmm. with the word yes. And I just stuck it on his stomach. <laughs> uh, and then he's like, what are you doing? And I said, because... I could have had a knife right mm-hmm. or a gun basically yeah. so we've just shown that like in that situation if I'd have been a criminal then it wouldn't have been a sticker it would have been a gun or a knife and we'd have been in right and so like that's so you... the demo so it's a non-lethal almost funny 
you know, sometimes we write tickle on it. Sometimes it's just a picture of, you know, a banana or something. Just something silly to diffuse it a little bit, but to sh- just to show that we had physical contact with that person. Um, and another, and the other thing we do is take a water pistol um, in a bag. Mm-hmm. And we take the water pistol and we put, um, sometimes we put some, oh, this is so, this is giving things away, but we'll put, <laughs> or a toy gun. Right, so basically a toy gun, um, and we'll put that in a bag, or I'll put it in the back of my uh, pants, you know, or it'll be, uh, you know, somewhere on me, sort of hidden in my clothes, like. And then I did one job where again I got right to the top guy in this huge important place, and I really should not have been able to get in, and just took it out and just went bang, you know. And it's yeah. like clearly a toy gun. Like, just let me say, this is this is UK. This is bright blue. You know, let's just say for argument's sake, it's got Mickey Mouse on it or something, right? It's really obviously I'm not going to hit anyone. But but you know, we we'll say, and we have actually squirted people with. Um, we filled them up with soda and stuff as well, just and got them with the soda, just so it stains, which is terrible, isn't it? But just so it's not just water. Um, and just gone. You know, oops. Bang bang, you know, it's a, yeah. and, and and like it's just to, it's sort of just to show without, without people being frightened, you know, that that, that we got that close. And I think there is no lesson like a demonstration mm-hmm. to show that, right? But I just don't want. We were always very conscious, like so. I wouldn't get like a replica uh, right um, firearm because someone might be genuinely frightened. Um, and obviously we're the good guys, right? So we're not going to do that. <laughs> but like, it does show, you know, show the points. I mean, we've done it again. We'd use like, I don't know why bananas are feature, but like we'd use bananas as well, just to show like we t- tap someone with a banana. Um, but, you know, you could take a banana in anyway, so it doesn't make the same point as as, as a toy gun, for example. And it just shows that the bag wasn't searched. Uh, because they are usually plastic, we actually fill them with metal, but I won't say how we do that. Crazy, interesting. Um, thank you for sharing that. That's right. When, <laughs> when um, you know, you were talking earlier about all the the different type of people you've worked with, um, and you mentioned you know big, strong military guys. Um, mm. but you know, you're you're not a big, strong military guy. How have you um, you know, seen your gender come into play, and how has it helped your your work and when you're doing these simulated attacks I mean you know I'm asked this a lot and the answer I always give is just that I just don't look dangerous I mean those of you who saw me in New York you knew I didn't look dangerous nobody pays me a second glance until they do right and I think that's very helpful it would be less easy to do that or to walk around or to make conversation um with you know a, a receptionist or you know someone just if I was a guy, just because even, no matter how well dressed you are, there's always that kind of element of someone's physically bigger or, um, could, you know, could be hitting on, you know, if it's a woman or whatever, could be hitting on you. Um, I don't have those disadvantages. I have I have privilege and advantage because I'm, and this is such a paradox, because I'm basically someone who doesn't stand out. I'm a middle-aged woman. I don't particularly stand out. I can be charismatic on stage, I guess, you know, otherwise people wouldn't (laughs) want me to speak on stage. But, you know, it's very much something that could be switched off. And I think that's really helped. And I just think a guy 
would struggle a bit more with that anonymity. Um, you know, in terms of what security are looking for, our prejudices mm-hmm. are that men are criminals, that men can be dangerous, and what you know, and that women are not, and mm-hmm. that's not necessarily true. You know, mm-hmm. a, a criminal doesn't always look like what we think a criminal looks like. A hacker doesn't look what we think a hacker looks like from TV and films. You know. Um, I should be wearing a hoodie and, and all the rest of it. And that's just not <laughs> how it really works. So I think those things have been useful. And I think as well, people open up to women sometimes. Women particularly might open up more to, to another woman than maybe <laughs> a guy. Um, I don't think that's always the case, but I just think it sometimes is the case. And I think that's been helpful as well. You know, there's that empathy you know, and the women who are listening to this will know what I mean. There's that kind of empathy and that shared experience that's helped. Whereas I think with, with, with men, that might be something that might be harder to draw out of someone. Not all the time, but just, <laughs> I think, excuse me, occasionally that might be the case. Definitely. So as a woman in this, you know, sort of seemingly male-dominated field of helping companies test their security measures, have you ever faced any challenges or biases in your work have you you know ever felt like oh this you know this person doesn't think I can do this because I'm a woman or um, because I look so I'm letting you struggle innocent (laughs) yeah in innocent yeah harmless Um, (laughs) yeah I mean so I guess um I mean yes you know women I think most women would tell you that there's been times in their lives when they've been you know perhaps taken advantage of or underestimated in some way I would say I was constantly underestimated by people who very much regret that now (laughs) um I you know constantly because of where I came from I mean I still now get the most ridiculous comments because I have a regional accent. I'm from uh, Liverpool in the UK. It's a regional mm. accent. Um, people might think I've not got a good education or that I actually am a criminal, um, which is which is just so, you know, tone deaf these days mm-hmm. to think those things. Um, or that, you know, uh, I was asked an awful lot in the beginning of my career, you know, who's looking after the family if you're away? <laughs> Um, as if I was going to go oh oh my goodness I need to make a phone call everybody stop everything I've forgotten about my children or whatever you know Um, but even now you know the books come out um, in February in the UK it's been already very successful um, and I've done a lot of media and interviews about it which is you know I'm very grateful for but I've been asked an awful lot what does your husband think about your job and it just makes me wonder whether anyone would ask a man in the same position well what does your wife think about your job mm-hmm. you know when was the last time you, you ever heard that you know what's that got to do with anything anyway mm-hmm. um so I kind of find that I find that I observe it now as a it mm-hmm. doesn't bother me now because I'm too long in the tooth I think and just just mm-hmm. just too grumpy to really worry about it and these days I'm grumpy with that kind of uh you know attitude Definitely. I think certainly from a security point of view the amount of people who've been who've jaw and sit the floor when I've said it was me um or that we did the job um and, and who knows whether that was gender-based I think it probably was a lot of the time 
Um, and I've certainly been mansplained. <laughs> Even <laughs> now, I mean, I had someone read the book and say, well, you know, you could have done this this way. Oh, goodness. And you're like, you know, you don't want to kind of flex, but I would, you could say, Do you know what, I am probably one of the best people in the world right now at three mm-hmm. or four things that I do you know yeah. and you are not you've never done it and you're telling me how to do this right I'm top of my game son and I kind of like you know people won't like to hear me say that even now it's like who are you to, t- to try and explain this to me mm-hmm. and I think we think mansplaining is some that just sounds men to women but I think it's people to people actually you know that there's certain times when we just think that we've got the right to give someone an opinion and I just would caution all of us men or women (laughs) about just be very careful what you assume about a person I mean I'll just give you another example I did a um a gig I can't say much about it because it will totally give it away because it was all over the the media but I did a gig and there was this young guy who was lovely in every way um and it was a speaking sort of engagement and there was probably 200 people there something like that bear in mind I do over 100 speaking engagements a year all over the world some of them are virtual with tens of thousands of people some of them are very scary because there's six people but they'll all be (laughs) hugely important directors of some Mm -hmm. massive brand um but the vast majority of them are at least 200 to 400 people in a room um all the time and I've done that job you know keynote speaking again at the sort of top of the category for for where that I'd be put for easily 20 years you know off and on and this little chap says to me Oh, there's a, there's 200 people tonight, and I said, "Oh yeah," and he said, "Oh, you're nervous," <laughs> and he, you know, you just go, "I know you mean well, mm-hmm. but you know, think about what you're saying before you say <laughs> that to me." You know, you I'm a paid for keynote here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I and 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 it, it wasn't. I am often asked, "Do you get nervous?" That's different than what he was saying. He was kind of saying, I'm, I suppose that you are nervous because you're speaking in front of people. Right. So I said, I'm not, I'm not really nervous now. And he said, oh, do you do many of these? And so, you know, it's that whole, I suppose it's that whole thing of, I don't expect him to know that, <laughs> but I think people should be very careful about how they phrase things, right? Um, because I'm sure there's people who are on stage all the time who still get nervous. I'm not saying that it's a good thing or a bad thing, but the assumption that I would be because do you, you know maybe I don't speak in public is just it was just a bit blind. I think it was, I think it was just tone deaf, really. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And like... just to say, just to add, didn't mm-hmm. ask my colleague who was also speaking whether he mm-hmm. was nervous. Of course. Of course why would he be, right? <laughs> and it's well meant. Mm-hmm. Um but it's also targeted, right? So mm-hmm. am I nervous, but not my colleague, mm-hmm. um, who looks, you know, very senior, very, you know, executive level, which he is, but so am I. I mean, I'm CEO, right? Yeah. So so you kind of so it's it's that whole thing. And it's it's I I always wonder, you know, don't be grumpy, don't make an assumption that's what someone means. Try to educate as opposed to get grumpy. And most days. 
I would go, I don't, I suppose you didn't mean to sound rude, but mm. I do lots of these, so no, I'm not. Or even just not, but just answer nicely. And I did just let him off because he meant well. <laughs> but I do think that sometimes it's a teachable moment. <laughs> <laughs> because for me, it doesn't bother me. It kind of glances off me because mm. I, I'm in a position now where I'm fortunate I can pick what jobs I do and who I speak to. But you've got to kind of send the elevator down. And he would say that, you know, that might really knock someone's confidence. If it was, let's say, for example, a woman who was going to speak and she saw that she was asked those questions, but her male mm -hmm. colleague was not, you know, and that might make someone feel less confident. So I think it's important that we build everyone up and that we um, really try and be careful in what we say. And that's most particularly on social media because there is a casualness mm -hmm. about cruelty um, that really hurts people's feelings. And again, some of us are more robust than others. So I've had some absolutely, I've done some social media stuff that has had millions of views, right? <laughs> Not because of me, just because of the platform. Um, and the comments are, some of the comments are just, trolling about the way someone looks or mm. that I should be in jail because of where I'm from and my job without they've never listened these are people who don't obviously have the concentration to listen to the whole interview so they're oh just gosh. burglar right um and it doesn't bother me one mm. bit in fact I wouldn't even see them except that some of them are quite funny they're unintentionally <laughs> quite funny and and, and and so my kids have shown me a few of them um like one, like I won't say, but like you know, stuff about my weight or whatever. So one of them mm. said, I, 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 "This makes me laugh." Now there might be people out there who might wonder why I laugh at this, but I thought this was hysterical, and it was. Um, it said she probably robs what was it, cake shops, and I thought, oh, <laughs> I, I, do you know what I mean? Because like because I'm not slim or whatever, I'm a bit chubby, and 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 so my little my my son knew I'd laugh, and he told me, but you know, I think it, there's a casualness to this. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, to me, if glances off me, I'm not that bothered. But I've got colleagues again, some of <laughs> whom are authors as well, who um, it turns much darker, much quicker. <clears throat> yeah. So I guess it's about respect. And as a woman and as someone who's, who's got something of a platform, mm -hmm. I sometimes choose to be grumpy about it. And I just, I wonder if I get a clap back from, from a lot of the uh a lot of the people listening to this is that there's times when actually teachable moment. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, going into that. Um, people are far too comfortable on the internet. That's, um, <laughs> I think that's the least I can say about that. So, you know, I want to, I want to go back to it. Your new book, which is People Hacker, Confessions of a Burglar for Hire, is um, currently available for pre-order or is it out now? So it was released, uh, as I'm speaking to you, it was released just about a week ago in the UK okay. and parts of Europe. Um, I did not do those negotiations myself. Obviously, I've got representation and the publisher um, who are currently negotiating uh, with more worldwide rights, okay, because... <laughs> The way it works in publishing, apparently, and some of you may know this, I didn't, is that you do home territory first. I think if I'd have been a known author, <clears throat> they might have gone global. 
But anyway, it's released in the UK. Before I was released, um, we went to number one in the charts on Amazon for in several categories. Yeah. Um, and actually, the highest I got, I think, in the Amazon top 100 was number, I think, think I want to say 47 but it could have been 49 but I'm going to leave, I'm going to say 47 wow. um and now of course it's you know it didn't stay there it kind of hovered in the in the top 100 <laughs> for a couple of days and now I'm still in the top 1000 but we did top categories that was before we released and then on the day of release it got a little bit higher in most categories as well and on audible which I read myself which I can tell you is a nightmare um <laughs> Just, just a horrible, you know, reading your own words in your own voice <laughs> for having to do all the intonations and things. I mean, I'm not an actor, so that was quite the thing. Um, and the producer just sort of saying, um, say that again. I'd say, you know, so, so I'd say something like walking down the staircase and go down the staircase, walking down the staircase and again down the staircase I mean just oh my god how actors do it I, you know it's just it drove me crazy um and so they're available now in the UK what I'm hoping is that we will quickly wrap up this negotiation stateside so that we can get it out to America because I have lots of people I've worked with hi everyone lots of people I've met hi ACFE um <laughs> who I know um, have messaged me and asked for, you know, how do we get hold of this book? How do we get signed copies? Um, and so, you know, we're hoping to get that done. Essentially, it's a memoir. It starts in my childhood with some things that happened to me that kind of were light bulb moments in terms of my future career. Um, I wanted to make it really easy to read. So a lot of the reviews, a lot of the people who contacted me are saying, you know, I read it in a weekend. It's easy. It's, you know, something that I can race through. Um, so, I, you know, I don't kind of, it's not boring about childhood. It's done in a series of, of episodes of different things that happened to me. Um, going right up to sort of almost the present day, I basically chose about 15 different either incidents in childhood, which were more or less social engineering and break-ins, let's face it, all the way up to showing a range of the jobs I do. Everything from those that were very dangerous um, and that were at a very high level um, involving, you know, international criminals and things, which of course I can't name, um, to some of the capers that we did, which I know um, the ACFE members enjoyed a lot when I spoke about it in New York. So times when the jobs have gone wrong and there's been cats turning up on a job or, you know, I've fallen <laughs> off the roof or we've met people. Um, so if that's what, you know, those are the stories. I thought that, you know, I picked some of the jobs I've done that make good stories, but then incorporated into that is a lot of descriptions and advice about security generally, about social engineering in particular and the security industry. And also some of my thoughts on things like diversity in the security industry and what we can do to really change our thinking as technology progresses. So, you know, I've, tr I've tried to pack a lot into it so that you get good bang for your book. And let's hope <laughs> that um, that's what happens. I just want to say thanks a lot for having me on the show and also just to do a big wave and a shout out to all the lovely ACFE people that I met in New York. You guys were so friendly to me, made me so welcome. So it's so nice to come back on and do the podcast for you today. Well, thank you again, Jenny, for joining us today. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to chat with us. Oh, thank you. That's such a kind thing to say. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for listening. 
You can find this podcast along with all other episodes of Fraud Talk on acfe.com, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been Rihanna Scoggins, signing off.